Hugh Scripps toss more challenging balls in the air, and Jones juggles them all with artful, light-stepping ease. It's magic. That's Peter Travers of Rolling Stone talking about Adaptation, which is one of my favorite comedies of all time. I went back and watched it again. 18th year anniversary. It's just, it is magical in so many ways. Nicolas Cage, Meryl Streep, and of course, Chris Cooper won an Academy Award for his performance from the mind of Charlie Kaufman, who's got a new book coming out. So I've reached out to my man Joe here. We're going to try to get Charlie Kaufman on Cinephile at some point, talk about Adaptation, Eternal Sunshine, and so much else. Speaking of what's coming up next week, we'll talk with the HBO miniseries starring Mark Ruffalo. I know this much is true. Brian De Palma's Body Double and my man Rami is coming back with season two. That'll be out I believe this Friday on Hulu. Thank you, as always, for checking us out here in Cinephile. I hope everybody is staying safe and has had a, a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Thank you, as always, for all the support, and thank you for checking us out. Got this DM here from Jody C. Pint at Jode Sauce. Can we get multiple episodes of Cinephile per week if possible? I just heard you say podcast numbers are down across the board, but I just started listening in March. I've already gone through all the episodes. Jody, I appreciate you. There's no way you could have gone through every single episode. We have 130 episodes here of Cinephile. So I, I don't know if you're lying to me, but if you're not, I really appreciate the support. That's very kind of you. I don't know what we can do. I mean, it's, there's not a lot of content these days, so it's tough to crank out more than uh, one a week. But thank you so much. Uh, DBlack519, go ahead on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Please do give us a, a generous rating of... As I rank my movies at a four-way belief, she can rank the podcast at a five stars. He writes, thank you so much for the Mount Rushmore of Eddie Murphy movies last week. Just watched Magnolia for the first time. It was different, but well-put-together movie. I know you really like this film. I just want to know why you enjoy it so much. Yeah, it's one of my favorite movies, D-Black 519. I, I, I could talk about Magnolia for a long time, but I'll do it as succinctly as possible. I think what I love about it is it has such audacity, and it really takes so many chances, and I think... By and large, it sticks the landing more than any film has the right to. Uh, for the first 10 minutes particularly, it's so audacious that Paul Thomas Anderson is literally framing this movie about chance and luck and, and opportunity and how it all converges together. Um, I think that the ensemble, whenever you have an ensemble piece, and we're going to talk about Ozark today, which is the main thing I'm reviewing, it's hard to have all the characters be compelling. But in Magnolia, I think all the characters are interesting and engaging, and I'm curious about each of them. I think a lot of them have a lot of depth of their character, which is hard because you're not the lead character. You're an ensemble piece. Um, I think Frogs Falling from the Sky took a lot of guts. I can't believe P.T. Anderson pulled it off, and it makes sense, and it's memorable. Uh, having the whole soundtrack from Amy Mann, and there's one sequence where each of the characters sings a line from the song. That could go drastically wrong. Look at Stephen Bochco's Cop Rock, and yet Magnolia takes all those chances. It ends up being a very moving story about loss and about aging. It's a real meditation on that. And it's also really funny. Look at William H. Macy's character and, you know, this born loser. And I've mentioned before, I think it's Tom Cruise's best film. And I, I have a lot of time for, for uh, Magnolia. I just think the filmmaking level of it, it's a real bravura show from P.T. Anderson. Another review here as well from Brett S. Baker. My man always tweets us. The Harbaugh brothers often talk of attacking each day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. I don't know about Adnan's days, but that's certainly how he hosts each podcast. It's the kind of passion that inspires one to broaden their horizons as a fan of film. Every week, he and his producer, Go Go Joe, set the table, serve a three-course meal of fun, entertainment, and education, always worth the time. Bonus content, my Mount Rushmore of tearjerkers. Well, this is good. We did this recently in the podcast, thanks to Dan Stanzik giving us that uh, recommendation. I like Brett's choices. Mr. Keating says goodbye. That's Dead Poet Society. I haven't seen it in so long. I'm on, honestly, Brett. I saw it when I was like 10, so I really don't remember the movie or that scene very well. John and Ray Kinsella have a catch. Absolutely. Field of Dreams, one of my favorite movies. 
Goose dies, Top Gun. Again, I haven't seen it since I was eight. I don't know if I welled up at watching Anthony Edwards. And Red reunites with Andy in Mexico, the Shawshank Redemption. That, that's a beautiful one, especially that narration. You know, I can't wait to see my friend and the whole concept of hope. And, you know, Red was here. Get busy living. Get busy dying. I mean, that's, it's, it's tremendous. Pretty good list there, Joe. John, I, I, I don't know if we had have a catch on our foursome. We, you and I went very heavy on the animated list. But I don't know if you want to speak to Dead Poets Society, Top Gun, or the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, yeah. Uh, Shawshank Redemption's incredible. But even the scene before he goes to Mexico and that re- he writes, Red was here and so was Morgan Freeman's character um, above the, the door frame. That scene's also a tearjerker right before leading up to the last scene. Yeah, I agree. It's a nice camera shot there from Frank Darabont. You're right. Camera uh, you know, swoops down. You see Morgan Freeman leaving. I agree with you. That's a really, really cool scene. Uh, it's not Red was here. What is it? Who, who is the guy? Was it Baines was here? I, Barnes? I can't remember the guy's name. Whatever the hell the guy's name is. The guy who died. And then you're right. And so was Red. And then he <laughs> says that. He leaves. All right. Apologies to all the Shawshank Redemption fans. We've just pissed off. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Total Recall 2005. The movie's a 2004. Really strong year. Million Dollar Baby, The Aviator, among the movies that came out that year. Plus, for Mount Rushmore, a Mount Rushmore, a Jack Nicholson. That's right. Whatever happened to Jack Nicholson? Has it made a... A major film since The Bucket List, which was over a decade ago, I believe 2008. The reason I thought about him was I watched Ironweed, which I'd never seen before. I panned on Golden Pond because I'd rather drown than have to watch on Golden Pond again. But there's a film called Ironweed with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. Both of those actors were nominated for Academy Awards. I'd never seen it before. I watched it. I enjoyed it. So that's going to be our Mount Rushmore, the best of Jack Nicholson. Uh, we've also got some entertainment news as well. Potentially the Oscars could get pushed back. Oh, no, don't say that. But I'm going to dive into Ozark here, and I'm not going to be kind, okay? 30 hours I spent watching Ozark, and I've heard the reviews. My cousins, my brother, Steve Levy, Mike Golick. I mean, everybody in the world says, you got to watch Ozark. Ozark's great. My wife and I watched the first episode a year ago, and I said, all right, it just seems like a derivative Breaking Bad. It just seems like a pale imitation of that. I have no reason to continue. But, of course, now we're in a pandemic. You know, there's no new movies coming out. Very few, of course. I mean, I, I guess I could watch the Kamel Nanjiani Issa Rae movie at some point, Lovebirds on Netflix. But I said, all right, Ozark, we'll make it an expedition here, my better half and I. Let's dive into 30 hours, three seasons of Ozark. And it did not take me 30 hours or three seasons to tell you. I stand by my original belief, which is, is a poor man's Breaking Bad. I think that the show never fails to get fully revved And first and foremost, what's it about money laundering? I can't think of a story idea that is less emotionally or visually stimulating than money laundering. I mean, Breaking Bad, you're making drugs, right? So you can literally see coke being made or you can see amphetamines or whatever drugs they're making. And you have, you know, Gus as a fence for his business, El Polo Loco. You've got Brian Cranston killing people. I mean, there's stuff going all over the place. And Ozark, like money laundering. I'm like, well, that's not even interesting. At one point early on, Isai Morales, by the way, who I love from La Bamba, plays Bob. I wish they had a lot more of him in the show. He's telling Marty, Jason Bateman's character, that he's got to, you know, launder $8 million. And I'm thinking, how the hell do you even do that? Especially in this place in the middle of nowhere, Ozark. And I thought visually, they should have actually shown on the screen, okay, here's where the money went to this business. Here's where the money went to the gentleman's club. Here's where this money went here. Just to show it, because I'm still in disbelief that this guy could actually launder $8 million in two months, which is the summer which he has. I'm getting ahead of myself, though, so let me give you the actual plot synopsis. 
Created by Belle Dubuque, the drama series stars Jason Bateman as Marty Bird, a financial planner who relocates his family from Chicago to a summer resort community in the Ozarks. With wife Wendy and their two kids in tow, Marty is on the move after a money laundering scheme goes wrong, forcing him to pay off a substantial debt to a Mexican drug lord in order to keep his family safe. While the bird's fate hangs in the balance, the dire circumstances force the fractured family to reconnect. So you do have elements of drama here. Bateman's been doing a bunch of malfeasance. His partner gets killed in the first episode. He's going to go to Ozark and make good on the debt. And unlike a show like Breaking Bad, in which Walter White was essentially going it alone there with Jesse and his wife Skylar was in the dark, you know, eventually she comes around, she's an accomplice. In this show, Wendy Bird, played by the magnificent Laura Linney, knows exactly what's happening, and so that adds a different layer to the show. Having said that, I still didn't find it engaging. And Jason Bateman is one of the issues with it. He always plays the same guy. My man Ben Lyons pointed this out to me, and I was resistant to the thought, I think what he said to me a year ago, because I love Arrested Development. Arrested Development is one of the funniest shows in the history of mankind. And Jason Bateman is outstanding on Arrested Development. And, and Ben said to me, but he's always the same guy. Because I'm telling you, that guy's got zero range. He's got about as much range as Derek Jeter going to his left in this final season. Like, you watch Bateman, and I'm watching the show, and I'm like, oh, what a surprise. Dress shirt, rolled up sleeves, same haircut, same voice, uh, just kind of an ineffectual character. He keeps talking about saving the family, which kept making me think about Arrested Development. Like, he's, he's always talking about saving the family there, but rather than George Michael, he's got to worry about Charlotte, who isn't nearly as interesting as my man Michael Cera. So I don't think Bateman stretches. I think his directing is much better than his acting. And my brother tells me he won an Emmy for season two for directing an episode of Ozark. And in the first season, I think he directed at least four episodes. Season two and season three, maybe one or two apiece. One thing I'll tell you about his directing, that guy loves focus pulls. That guy will, will just lay down an oncoming traffic for a focus pull. To explain what that is, when you're looking at a shot of two characters, or even could just be a character with, you know, a picnic in the table in the background. You have foreground and background. The focus pole, you literally rack focus as if you had the camera. And so if the character in the foreground is in focus and the character in the background is not, when you rack focus or do a focus pole, all of a sudden the character in the foreground is blurred and the character in the background is there. I'm telling you, I'm watching the show like, dude, hey, listen, a focus pole, it, it has, you know, real power when it happens once in a while. This guy must be doing it every episode, every, every minute of every episode. Uh, so clearly, the, the Academy, if you want to win an Emmy Award, just have a lot of focus polls in your show. I mean, he is as focus polls as Scorsese is to tracking shots, or Hitchcock is to the, the overhead angle of impending doom. So the problem, as I said, is I just don't find there to be enough engaging characters or stimulating plots. I think Bateman's woefully miscast. Most of the supporting cast isn't particularly engaging. They're either one-note rednecks or just disturbed characters who don't hold my attention. Petty, for example, plays the FBI agent. And you could say, listen, in any show, you got to have a great nemesis, right? If you don't find the characters, the main characters, that stimulating. If I'm telling you I think Bateman's kind of an opaque guy, well, if there's a good villain chase, well, that makes it endearing, right? Or at least interesting. Well, no. Petty comes off like this poor man's Hugh Jackman. He's an FBI agent who's willing to bend the law, who's also gay, who, who seduces one of the characters. Uh, and later on, it, it just takes some sordid turns. I mean, when he's telling Ruth, Julia Garner's character, about her dead uncle, and he says, yeah, we had our dicks in each other's asses, but I'm still going to get justice. I mean, that, that is a howitzer of a line. Later on, he's masturbating to the voice of the dead uncle. I mean, it is just disturbing. And, and this also makes me think about these shows with these amoral characters. It's that they always have to one-up how depraved the character could be. 
Like at one point, Laura Linney is trying to, you know, seduce and coerce the politicians, not in a sexual manner, but she's trying to get some money. And so she gets a stripper from a gentleman's club, which they bought, to go to the politician. And later she walks in. The stripper is wearing a strap on. The politician sucking off a stripper. And Lenny says to the guy, okay, maybe this isn't you know, where you and I would like to be. Maybe this is embarrassing for both of us. And the guy is, he's in a hairy stomach and he's wearing a bra. And all I'm thinking about is anybody out there who says, hey, I want to be an actor. Like, how does that guy feel? Like, that guy we need to get on Cinephile. Like, that, like, hey, who are you on Ozark? Oh, I'm the politician who was blowing a stripper wearing a strap on, and I'm wearing a bra, and you see a close-up of my face. Just brutal. Having said that, we, even though there's a lot of predictable plot twists, I mean, my wife guessed, I'm going to guess at least six major plot points. Like, that, that guy's going to die. She's about to die right here. This character's about to say this. He's going to turn on her right here. I mean, it, it, it was... I mean, quite frankly, annoying after a while. I'm like, listen, I know you're predicting the entire show. I'm not smart enough to get this. Uh, but there's a lot of telegraphing all over the place. The bottom line is this. Here's the good news. Whenever Jason Bateman looks at the ratings, and apparently it is a wildly successful show, Emmy Awards, Emmy wins, everyone loves it. He should thank God they got Laura Linney for this show. Laura Linney puts on a master class in this show, and she is nothing short of masterful. There's a couple of moments. They've got one pretty good fight um, in, the, in the first season, but episode seven. The best episode of season one is episode eight, which is a flashback, which shows how her character, Wendy, is complicit in all of Marty's actions. Um, and in season three, the whole storyline, which again is very predictable, involving her brother. I mean, the, the episode eight, nine. Let me tell you right now, she's definitely getting an Emmy nomination. She might actually win an Emmy because her performance is terrific. And it's a reminder of what a good actor Laura Linney is. I went back and listened to uh, her on Mark Maron's podcast, W2F, check it out. And she didn't talk much about Ozark, but it's a reminder of how good an actress she is. She was in The Savages, and she loves Philip Seymour Hoffman. She says, to this day, whenever I'm acting, I try to summon the spirit of Philip Seymour Hoffman. She goes, we were great friends. I love working with a wonderful guy. She was in John Adams. Paul Giamatti, HBO miniseries, amazing. Uh, and she was in You Can Count on Me, which I'm going to talk about next week because Mark Ruffalo is in the HBO miniseries. I know this much is true. And that announced his arrival and in many ways her arrival as well. She's been an actress. She was in Kinsey as well. Terrific. I believe she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress in that movie. Mystic River. She's tremendous. She's like Lady Macbeth, you know, just basically goading Sean Penn into getting revenge for their daughter. So... Listen, thank God Laura Linney's in it because she elevates the entire show. And thank goodness for Julia Gardner, who was not nominated for the first season, was nominated the second season and won. And she plays the tough-talking, no-nonsense, very profane Ruth. And she's the one that I think really holds people's attention and generates a lot of empathy, particularly what happens with the storyline involving her father. Um, but ultimately, I'd rather be stranded anywhere than the Ozarks. Here's my point always about shows. When people say to me, you love watching movies, you're not as big into shows. And here's my reason. A bad movie is only two hours a waste of my time, right? On Golden Pond is an hour and 50. And I say, okay, it didn't work for me. And by the way, that adds to my catalog of Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn. Ozark, this is 30 hours of my life, which I'm never going to get back. And I don't feel particularly better off for it. Ultimately, I'm giving it two Maple Leafs and I totally understand, Joe. I'm clearly in the minority here. I know it's a wildly popular show, but it just didn't do it for me. You know, that that that's fine. I appreciate you putting in the legwork so that I don't have to, because I've never seen Ozark. And my impression of it was exactly what you said. It seemed like a poor man's Breaking Bad. 
Um, but I, I don't know if you mentioned it, but Laura Linney in Truman Show, she's also great in that too. And I guess I'll also say that there's no such thing as small parts, only small actors. So if you're cast as the politician who needs to blow off a stripper wearing a strap on, I hope he just went for that role. I hope he just dived in. So maybe I'll watch it for that scene. Yeah, we'll yeah. No, I was going to say, I should have written down and time-coded that exact scene. You, you can listen back, by the way, a previous episode. I had Matthew McConaughey on Cinephile. And there's, I can't remember the movie I was reviewing. It came out last year or something like that. But, but I joked to him. I said, hey, you know, for all the women listening, and hey, for the guys as well, uh, your bare butt is shown at like the 23-minute mark. And Matthew McConaughey laughed. He goes, well, thanks for time-coding it, letting everybody know the exact part. I should have actually written down where this politician scene is. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was. I think it's season two. I'll have to go find it now. Just so everyone can be reviled by the scene itself. Great <laughs> point about the Truman Show. You're right. She's awesome. The scene where she starts to get freaked out by Truman realizing that Jim Carrey is in on the roost. You're right. She's fantastic in that movie. Oh yeah, so great. I can't. I mean, now I want to watch, uh, rewatch Truman Show. She's also really good in the animated show BoJack Horseman, where she plays herself in it. Um, so I would recommend that for people who like Laura Linney. Yeah, as far as shows that I don't watch that I'd like to watch, BoJack Horseman is definitely something I should give a chance. So you're right. I should. I mean, listen, between Will Arnett, uh, Keith Oberman plays a character on the show, a newscaster, and Laura Linney. I didn't realize Laura Linney was in the show. I should definitely watch BoJack at some point. Ultimately, though, Ozark did not work for me. Let's get to something that really does work for me. One of my favorite comedies of all time. I'm so glad it was on TV. I recorded it. I watched it again. Nicholas Cage is Charlie Kaufman, a confused L.A. screenwriter overwhelmed by feelings of inadequacy, sexual frustration, self-loathing, and by the screenwriting ambitions of his freeloading twin brother Donald, played by Nicholas Cage. While struggling to adapt The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean and Meryl Streep, Kaufman's life spins from pathetic to bizarre. The lives of Kaufman Orlean's book become strangely intertwined as each one's search for passion collides with the others. And anybody who thinks this life of being a faux film critic and you know reviewing shows must be a lot of fun getting paid to watch things. I remember years ago, Siskel Lieber talked about it and said, you know, the number one thing that is the worst part of the job, the absolute worst, is when you watch you know three movies a week or whatever it is, and you go, God, it's the same old, same old, and it feels so derivative and repetitive and seen it before. And so that's why when something is original with a capital O, capitalized, italicized, you go crazy for it. And that's where the critics go nuts for it. That's why Fargo, Gene Siskel said, was one of his top 10 movies of all time. Because he said it was so original. I'd never seen anything like Fargo ever before. And it literally combined every single genre. It's a murder mystery. It's a comedy. It's a drama. It's romantic. It's a film noir. He goes, it's all these things. And that makes me realize why I love adaptation so much. Because it is so original. Capital O, capitalize it, italicize it. I've never seen a movie like it. It is so funny and takes so many chances, and yet it works, which it just shouldn't. And Cage is tremendous. A previous episode of Cinephile, you can listen to it. I talked to him about Breaking Out the Dead, which he was very happy I mentioned. Underrated Scorsese film. And I told him Adaptation is one of the best movies I've ever seen. And, and Nicolas Cage is tremendous in it. It's not just playing one character perfectly. It's both characters perfectly, right? The, the joke isn't that, oh, he's so good playing the self-loathing guy. No, he's so good playing the happy-go-lucky guy as well, his brother Donald. But nailing Charlie Kaufman, I mean, it's one of my top five comedies of all time. That is disputable. You could argue there are funnier movies. Fine. What you cannot dispute, I'm telling you right now, this is one of the top five most original movies you'll ever see. As far as being meta 
M-E-T-A, and turning things on its head. And it shouldn't be surprising. It's coming from Charlie Kaufman because he did it with being John Malkovich. He did it with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He did it, I think, with middling results in Synecdoche, New York, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. But he always is going to take chances. And this story about the creative process and about this guy who hates himself. I mean, the time, the other times he calls himself fat. I, I'm laughing every single time. And even the first scene is voiceover, but him saying, you know, I, I, I'm so fat. I got to start working out. I got to, you know, girls, you know, they have so much pressure, but guys have pressure too now. Like I've got to, I've got to stop wearing my shirt tails out because I, I think that's deceiving the fact I'm so fat and I'm terrible and I'm a horrible writer and I'm worthless. I mean, the scene where he's literally saying all these things to himself, like stop sweating. Oh my God, she's looking at your hairline. Oh, you're so pathetic. You're just a disgusting human being. And Tilda Swinton says, we think you're great. <laughs> like that is this guy's life. He just thinks the worst of everything. The trailer for alone, if you haven't seen adaptation, go watch the trailer. Two and a half minutes. They've got under pressure, David Bowie, and it's perfect. So Charlie Kaufman lives his life the way he writes his life, with great difficulty. And so he's trying to adapt this book from Meryl Streep's character, Susan Orlean. And yet he says it's that, he says it so perfectly, it's that sprawling New Yorker shit. He goes, there's no resolution, there's no up and down, there's no character arcs. Again, one of my issues with Ozark, I don't think Bateman's character really changes. He's kind of just the same guy. Well, same thing the way that Cage writes this. He goes, listen, th the character doesn't change. It's the orchid thief. It's about this character played by Chris Cooper, who's got no front teeth, who's this redneck living in Florida, who's obsessed with flowers and rants about the crazy white man. And at one point collected fish, and then one time said held the fish. How am I going to adapt this? So rather than being a story about the orchid thief, it ends up being a story about adapting a story about an orchid thief. And so you've got not only scenes of Cage as cop and writing the script, but also Meryl Streep's character writing about this character uh, of John LaRoche. And she's visiting LaRoche and speaking to him. So the movie's working on so many levels, one of which just to create a process, but two of which, what is it like to be an orchid thief? And Chris Cooper won an Academy Award for his performance because at first you think, oh, this is the kind of guy you make fun of. No front teeth, trucker hat, like I said, redneck in the South. But then you see the tragedy he's overcome and this horrible car accident and how he lives his life. And he gives it such pathos. And he deserved to win that Oscar. He's tremendous. And Meryl Streep's character seems like one of these intelligent writers. But you see that she wishes she could be like LaRoche. She wishes she could care about something as passionately as he does. Because she's living this inert life, this life of ennui. So it's working on multiple levels. And then I get to Donald Coffin, which is, of course, Charlie's twin brother. Nick Cage playing both characters. This guy's got a big smile on his face. Yeah, he's got a receding hairline. Yeah, he's a little boy, but he doesn't care. He's playful. He's having a great time. He's sleeping with a person he met on being John Malkovich. And again, speaking of meta, they have one sequence <laughs> where they're on the set of being John Malkovich. So you see John Cusack in character going under that eight and a half foot wall and Catherine Keener. I mean, it's just, it's working upon levels upon levels, which gets me to the single best part of the movie, Brian Cox. We've all established now my love for Brian Cox after watching Succession. He's got a scene here playing Robert McKee, the legendary screenwriter, which is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Nick Cage is using voiceover, and he just berates the whole concept of voiceover and berates the whole idea that, you know, there's nothing out there in the world worth really writing about. You know, that the real life doesn't have a lot of drama. And Brian Cox, inflamed, overacting to the extreme, and just boisterously yells and castigates Charlie Coffin by pointing out every day something happens in the world. People find love. People lose love. A guy cheats on his best friend. A guy makes a critical decision to change his life. A, a, a woman finds her baby dead outside a firehouse. He goes, this stuff happens all the time. He goes, how could you tell me there's not anything happening in life that real life is boring? 
It's a hysterical scene. And later on, it's even made pure by the fact he takes out Robert McKee and Robert McKee helps him with the script. And as he tells him, hey, you and you guys are twin brothers, Jules Epstein and Philip Epstein. They wrote Casablanca, finest script ever made. Adaptation, the third act, when I first saw it, I didn't like it as much because basically Charlie Kaufman becomes the third act. He takes McKee's advice and does the sellout model. He puts in a car chase. He puts in an unnecessary death. He has a big love romantic scene. He has voiceover at the end. He has the music fade up. At the time, I just thought that wasn't as strong as the rest of the movie. When I watched it again, I said, no, of course it's strong. They're making fun of, they're parodying, they're satirizing what those movies are all about. I can't see enough good things about adaptation. If I could give it 10 Maple Leafs, I would. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. I hope I haven't given it away for those who haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, please do watch it. Joe, it's brilliant. I, lo- I loved it. I watched it last night. Um, you know, I'm a really big Spike Jones fan, Charlie Kaufman fan, um, Nicolas Cage fan, and I hadn't seen this movie in maybe 12 to 15 years. I thought it held up. I thought it was equally as weird as being John Malkovich. Um, and I like the themes in it. You know, he, without giving too much away, he's trying to adapt, adapt this movie or this uh, uh, book, and at the end of the film... And it's killing him to do it throughout the movie. Then it actually kind of literally tries to kill him at the end of the movie. I also like how he credited Donald Kaufman as a writer on the movie. Um, So that's pretty cool. And I liked how he's talking about, you know, split personality and how, you know, you shouldn't use it in movies. But then Donald is, in effect, his split personality throughout the entire movie. I, I really enjoyed it. I was talking to my roommate, though, about it. And she absolutely hates the movie. Oh. Um, and and I asked why, and she just feels that it's um, kind of self-indulgent because she she had read the original book, The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlin, and she loved it. And so her point is you have this white man and his inability to adapt a movie. So instead of adapting this beautiful book, he just makes the movie about himself. And so she didn't, she didn't like that aspect of it too. But I personally really uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, I guess I could see that. I mean, if, if you've read the book and you just want an adaptation of The Orchid Thief, you go, wait, this is an adaptation about the adaptation. I guess I could see your point, but I think you still get enough elements. Again, I haven't read the book, so maybe it's unfair of me to even try to gesticulate, but I think there's enough scenes of The Orchid Thief that I think if you found that interesting, you'd feel compelled to end up reading the book. At least that's my feeling on it, because I do think that section of the movie in which, you know, She's profiling LaRoche and what he's all about is still interesting. Uh, David Ants of Newsweek writes, in the wrong hands, the lunacy could have gotten out of control, but Jones has near perfect pitch. He never forces the farce, rooting even Kaufman's wildest digressions in real emotions. I mean, how about the fact at one point he's talking about Darwin? Like, he's talking about how to start the movie, and he's like Charles Darwin like writing the story. He's got the beginning of time. You're right about Spike Jones. I keep mentioning Kaufman, but Spike Jones is equally brilliant. And Carolyn Westbrook writes, like Malkovich, this is too surreal for all tastes, but an audacious original experience for those attuned to the Jones-Kaufman brand of filmmaking. A couple more movies for you, then we'll get to some movie reviews. Dress to Kill, which, by the way, at one point I was dying because Donald and Charlie referenced it because Donald's talking about a split murder, split personality murder, 
And Charlie tells him, listen, there's nothing more hackneyed than that. Serial killers and split personalities. But he tries to be nice afterwards. He goes, yeah, it's like Sybil meets Dress to Kill. And Donald Coffin says, oh, I love Dress to Kill, which I just watched for the first time. When Liz Blake, played by Nancy Allen, a prostitute sees a mysterious woman brutally slay homemaker Kate Miller, Angie Dickinson, she finds herself trapped in a dangerous situation. While the police think Liz is the murderer, the real killer wants to silence the crime's only witness. Only Kate's inventor's son, Peter, played by Keith Gordon, believes Liz. Peter and Liz team up to find the real culprit who has an unexpected means of hiding her identity and an even more surprising motivation to kill. I enjoyed it. It's a movie that I think has been awfully dated because the main character is transgender and they've got a sequence at the end. I mean, it is eye-rolling and uh, a little nausea-inducing at the way they try to explain that the character, when his penis gets hard, the female side takes over and then feels like they have to murder the male side because he's transitioning from male to female. You know, he's a man in a female's body and just hates himself so much that he feels like he has to murder somebody when he becomes sexually aroused. I mean, that clearly is not going to play well in 2020 in the LGBT community. And this movie was made 40 years ago. So the 40th anniversary of it, I don't think that, you know, transgender character kills an attractive woman because their penis gets aroused and they're mad at the male side of themselves. Having said that, in terms of tension and plot invention, it's certainly enjoyable. It's what I would call a genre movie. And it continues Brian De Palma's obsession and love with Alfred Hitchcock. It's a fascinating debate. Is De Palma a great director? Because he takes Hitchcock movies and then forms them in his own with the DNA of Hitchcock. Or is he an outright thief and a guy that just makes Hitchcock movies all over again and just remakes them and doesn't have the originality of the first movie? And then just, you know, earns the spoils of them. I don't know what the answer is. It really is up to each person's view. Because clearly watching Dress to Kill, you go, yeah, this is psycho. (laughs) This is psycho in 1980. There's a brutal slashing scene. Rather than in a shower, he puts it in an elevator. But he doesn't have Bernard Herrmann's score. But you know right away, you're like, yeah, man wearing a wig. Yeah, psycho again. Okay. So Michael Caine's going to be the Anthony Perkins character. All right, interesting. (laughs) But still, it works because... It's got enough moments that are certainly juicy. And say this for De Palma, I'm telling you, as far as any director, when you throw dialogue out the window, he's having a blast. When the camera just takes over, like he's got a 12-minute sequence here, fabulous. No dialogue, just one character tracking the other. Think of Carlito's Way. What's the best part of Carlito's Way? The last 10 minutes. Not a word of dialogue. It's just Pacino getting raced the Grand Central Station. You got that incredible shot in the escalator. I mean, that whole sequence is amazing. The subway cars chasing the cars. Amazing. And he does that in Dress to Kill as well. Think of Untouchables. What's the best scene of Untouchables? When the baby carriage is going down the steps in slow motion, which is, of course, a nod to the Odessa step sequence in Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin. Like, De Palma loves taking famous sequences, famous movies, and putting his own spin on them. That's why reviews are always so kind to him, generally speaking. Now, I think in his later years, it became a little bit too uh, predictable. Uh, you look at Femme Fatale, Rebecca Romaine, uh, Snake Eyes with Nick Cage. You know, just, those movies just didn't work. Although Raising Kane to me, still has some moments with uh, John Lithgow. Michael Blow in a Boston Globe writes, dressed to kill as a nail-biting, seat-squirming, stylish murder mystery with a brain. Dave Keir, Chicago Reader. Originality has never been a high value in the genre-bound aesthetic of filmmaking, but De Palma cheapens what he steals. Okay, there's my point there, but him being a thief. Roger Ebert. De Palma is not yet an artist of Hitchcock's stature, but he does earn the right to a comparison. Oh, there you go. Dressed to kill. Don't know if you've ever seen it, Joe. A 40-year anniversary of that movie. You know, this is the De Palma blind spot that I have. I've never seen Dress to Kill. Um, the cast 
it's looks great on it. And you know me, I'm a, I'm a big De Palma fan, so I definitely will have to watch this. But did you catch the Dress to Kill reference in um, Adaptation? Yeah, when he's talking with the twin brothers, and he goes, oh, it's like Sybil meets Dress to Kill. And Donald says, I love Dress to Kill. It was great. Yeah, he at the he goes. I love dressed to kill until the third act uh, denouement, and then <laughs> that's not uh, how you Charles pronounce says, it. <laughs> that's not how it's pronounced. <laughs> that's right, Daniel. Well, that's right. That's really great. Oh, that was great. Uh, one more review. By the way, I'm going to give uh, dressed to kill. I'll give it three Maple Leafs. Uh, like I said, I, I was a little squirming at the end there, but I, I did think it was enjoyable and very suspenseful. All right, one more movie for you. Ironweed in Depression era Albany, New York, erstwhile baseball star Francis Phelan, played by Jack Nicholson has become an alcoholic vagabond after guilt over accidentally killing his infant son led him to desert his family. Over the course of several days, he ambles from gritty job to dirty bar to makeshift sleeping quarters. By chance, he encounters fellow itinerant drinker and his sometime lover, Helen Archer, played by Meryl Streep. Together, they wax nostalgic about their haunted pasts. The review here from Ed Potton is notable of the Times UK. If you enjoyed Richard E. Grant and Melissa McCarthy as On the Skids New Yorkers and Can You Ever Forgive Me, here's an ever starrier example of Hollywood poverty porn. Um, it's adapted from a play, which means that it feels a little stilted at times, but, but I enjoyed it. I thought it had excellent performances. Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep both nominated for Academy Awards, Best Actor, Best Actress, respectively. A good supporting cast as well, including Diane Venora. Remember her in Heat playing Pacino's wife? Fred Gwynn played the judge in My Cousin Vinny. Uh, Tom Waits as Rudy, the famous singer. He's Nicholson's main accomplice. There's not a lot of meat on the bone, but I thought the performances were very much lived in and felt authentic, and it made you feel like you were in that era. Great Depression a terrible time of poverty. You look at what this country is going through right now, you know, 35 million Americans unemployed. I mean, we're talking about levels you're not going to hit since the Great Depression. So I found the movie timely and looking back at it. And honestly, it's a movie to watch for the, for the performances. Like I said, as far as the story, I mean, it's literally about a couple of drifters and homeless people looking for their next meal. Uh, Nicholson's character trying to reconnect with his family. But it's a reminder of what a great actor he is. It's what inspired this... Uh, this week's Mount Rushmore. Streep's character, I don't think, fares nearly as well. She just doesn't have as much to do. Uh, Meryl Streep's obviously, you know, the greatest actress of all time. I just didn't think her performance was as memorable. But I thought Nicholson was definitely worthy of watching. Slow pace, to be sure. Listen, this is 215, 220. We're not getting car chases in this thing. But I would, uh, I would like to read the book, which it was based on. Uh, Kennedy was the guy who wrote the book. Despite its nearly two-and-a-half-hour running time, its superstar cast has $23 million budget. Janet Maz in the New York Times writes, Mr. Babenko's Ironweed is skeletal. Sheila Benson, unkind. The film becomes becalmed and confusing. It lacks the novel's great, unwavering trajectory. I think it two and a half Maple Leafs, because like I said, I think performances are noteworthy. And I like the fact, by the way, Nicholson's character is a former baseball player, because he's like from the dead ball era. At one point, he's talking to his grandson about playing with Ty Cobb and why Ty Cobb was better than Babe Ruth, although he couldn't hit home runs like the big guy, like the Bambino. That's Ironweed. Joe, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. I haven't seen it, but the, the cast looks great. I'm a huge, huge, huge Tom Waits fan, so that's a, definitely a plus. But I guess the thing that, that worries me about it is the first review that you read. And I, I personally hate it. Can you ever f forgive me? And so I have two questions for you. One, would you is that an accurate comparison, this movie, to ever? can you ever forgive me? And two, how is Jack Nicholson's acting in it? In it, is he overacting or is he chewing the scenery? Is he more about Schmidt and underplayed in it? How is he? Yeah, I thought it was more like about Schmidt, more subdued. I mean, ten minutes in, he's got a scene where he goes to the grave of his infant son. 
And he's talking to his dead son. And basically what happened is that he's holding his kid and dropped him accidentally. And that's why he died. And his wife never revealed the truth for years to anybody that he was the reason that the kid died. So he's got a really good scene there where he could, you know, kind of get, get the tear ducts going. Instead, I thought he underplayed it and played it really well. You, you know, you don't want to see him bawling 10 minutes in a movie. He's just talking very flatly with some emotion to his son. And then Tom Waits shows up and away they go. And later on, he tells, you know, his wife, hey, I went to his grave and that kind of stuff. So I thought his acting was terrific. Uh, and I don't think it was like Can You Ever Forgive Me. I disagree with that review, actually. I mean, yeah, I mean, th- th- this movie is like abject poverty, okay? M- like Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson are literally wearing trench coats, sleeping outside, starting a fire with a bunch of homeless people. Can You Ever Forgive Me? Melissa McCarthy's character, I mean, she's more filthy than anything. I mean, she has a job, loses the job because of her behavior. And then, you know, she's got, you know, cat crap all over the place, which Richard E. Grant ends up cleaning up. But I, I didn't think that it was as, uh, as bleak as that movie. All right, cool. Then I will I will definitely check it out. Did you at least like Richard E. Grant in Can You Ever Forgive Me? I thought he was hysterical. Yeah, I did like him in it. Uh, I just didn't think... I, I also went into the movie completely blind. Um, I saw it at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Brooklyn. I thought it was a thriller of some sort, so maybe it was also <laughs> just my expectations going into the movie. And so that could have... You know, if I had known that it was more of a biopic picture about this, this woman creating counterfeit letters, maybe my opinion of it would be different, you know? <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. It was not not the thrilling the story you're thinking when she's uh, you know replicating Hemingway's signature and uh, pawning it off. All right, coming up next, entertainment news: the Mount Rushmore, Jack Nicholson movies, and this week's Total Recall: the 2005 Oscars. Well, news involving Full House actress Lori Loughlin, that's right, agreeing to serve two months behind bars and her fashion designer husband, Mosimo Giannulli, agreeing to serve five months, part of a deal to plead guilty to cheating the college admissions process, according to co-papers filed last week. Stunning reversal for the famous couple who insisted for the last year they were innocent, that investigators had fabricated evidence against them. The decision comes about two weeks after the judge rejected their bid to dismiss the case over allegations of misconduct. So you know what? Hey, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. This is nonsense. Oh, you know what? We can't get out of it. Okay, fine. We'll do it. Under Lachlan's deal, $150,000 fine, 100 hours of community service. Gina Newley gets a $250,000 fine, 250 hours of community service. I always laugh at those signs because that's, you know, those fines, excuse me, that's just a chump change with these guys. But prison time. The thought here is can't wait for the movie, right? Felicity Hoffman, what'd she get? I think a weekend in jail, maybe a week tops. Lori Laughlin gets two months. This has to be a made-for-TV movie, like an Amy Fisher, Joey Buttafuoco movie in a couple years, right? Oh, yeah, it has to be. And I'll be there front row the day it comes out because nothing gets me going more than uh, fall from grace. So I'll definitely be there. Um, Yeah, I think overall this is positive news. Do you think, I know there's been a debate on whether these celebrities should actually do jail time because it's a nonviolent crime. Uh, Where do you fall on that? Yeah, I don't think it's it's a long enough sentence that I have an issue with it. I think it, you know, you want to be able to tell somebody, listen, you bribed officials. It was clearly reprehensible behavior. Thus, you're getting prison time. And like I said, Felicity Hoppin, I mean, look it up. I think it was a weekend, a week, whatever it was, two months. I mean, that's not horrible. I mean, God, right now you feel like we're in prison of self-isolation. So I, I think I, I don't have an issue with it because of the timeline. If it was like six months, a year, I'd say, okay, hang on a second. Victimless crime. You bribe some people. Yeah, it's horrible. It happens all the time. I think two months to me sounds fair. I mean, it's got, for Roy Laughlin, she'd be thrilled because my understanding was if they kept saying they're going to be innocent, she was facing years of jail time, plural. Wow, yeah. It sounds like they did the uh, optimal move for their situation. Yeah. So 
Yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. Uh, other news here, nothing I love more than the Academy Awards. They aren't until February, but the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is considering postponing the big night. It's supposed to be February 28th of next year on ABC. One of the sources familiar to all variety. It's likely they'll be postponed. That stinks. Not canceled, though. Uh, postponed. Person cautions the details have not been fully disclosed. Another source says the date is currently unchanged at ABC. We'll find out. I mean, that would be... Uh, Upsetting, certainly. It's unclear postponing the Oscars, by the way, it also mean that the Academy will allow films released after the year-end deadline to qualify for the 2021 Oscars. That's a good point. So the 2020 Oscars should be all the movies released this year. If the Oscars are postponed from February until June, well, then it still should be, I'm talking June of next year, it still should be all the movies of this year. I, I would hate to have it all of a sudden be, all right, here's the movies that last you know, 16 months or something like that. That would be very odd to me. And uh, one other bit of entertainment news here, Avatar 2. Been waiting for this for years, huh? God, you're waiting to get out of uh, pandemic mode. I'm wondering when the hell we're going to get another Avatar. Well, good news here. Oscar-winning Titanic producer John Landau showed off a fit on Instagram from the Avatar 2 set special message. Our Avatar sets are ready. We couldn't be more excited to be headed back to New Zealand next week. There's a shot of a matador. Avatar, the first major studio film to return to production since all shoots closed down in mid-March because of the coronavirus pandemic. New Zealand's government endorsing the health and safety protocols. So this is big news. I mean, Avatar 2 is going to be released by Disney next December. December 17th, 2021. Uh, last summer, Avengers Endgame beat Avatar, highest grossing movie of all time, $2.79 billion. I saw Avatar once. I liked it. Certainly different. I'm shocked it made that much money. I say this for James Cameron, man. Between Titanic and Avatar, he can go to bed on his pillow full of dollar bills feeling pretty good about his life. Can he? <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he's mastered the blockbuster at this point, hasn't he? Um, I'm, glad, I'm glad that they're going back. I know New Zealand did an incredible job fighting the pandemic. I think they eliminated the COVID-19 on the island in general, too, so... Yeah, I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to see Avatar 2 because you know it's going to be a big cinematic 3D experience. I've, I I don't know about you, but I feel like he will use the medium and the technology like no one else before. Yeah, I, I was about to say, okay, whenever something feels like it's dated, Cameron's going to use cutting-edge technology like nobody else. Bunch of blue people just like the Smurfs. All right, that's your entertainment news. Mount Rushmore next. Mount Rushmore. Well, as I reviewed Ironweed, 1987 film, but a couple of homeless drifters in the Depression era, starring Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep, that's the inspiration for this week's Mount Rushmore of Jack Nicholson movies. I'm not going to read the entire list because there's just too many to count, but God, this guy's a legend for a good reason and a three-time Academy Award winner, which is where we begin. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, indelible performance playing McMurphy, a guy who's going to fight against... The regime and Nurse Ratchet. Yes, he's in an insane asylum, but he believes he has his merits until, of course, the heartbreaking in which he's lobotomized. Uh, amazing performance. A rabble rouser in many ways you think of Jack Nicholson, and this is the first performance you think of because it tapped into all of his wild and crazy energy. Another film from the 70s, one of the greats of all time, Chinatown, unforgettable. At the time, he didn't like the fact that Polanski cuts up his nose. He's going to wear that bandage instead. That image of him wearing a bandage with a fedora is about as memorable as any movie from the 1970s or from Jack Nicholson's filmography. He plays a private detective so well, especially the shocking 
news of what happens with Faye Dunaway when he starts slapping her all over the place and he finds about her relationship with John Houston, her father. Uh, about Schmidt, I talked about before. I love it because it's a rare example of Jack being subdued. I wanted to get something from later in his career. The scene where he finds out that Ndugu wrote himself a letter, that's about as pure and emotional a bit of acting as you've ever seen from Jack Nicholson. It's also very funny. He's mourning his wife's death. The scene where he's putting cold cream on, it's so sad. And then he finds out she was cheating on him, and of course he's incensed, and he's just raising holy hell, which is really funny as well. And lastly, I'll go with as good as it gets, a Michael Lombardi favorite. Uh, so well done. Tremendous script from James L. Brooks. Who else could you get to play this character of uh, Melvin Udall, OCD? Uh, he's got a lot of issues. He's uh, misogynist. He's misanthropic. He's racist. And yet he cannot help but falling in love with Helen Hunt. Uh, the scene in the diner where he tells her, you make me want to be a better man, is an absolute beauty, as well as the scene at the end where he says, you know, I'm the only person alive that, makes, that realizes you're the greatest woman alive. It is, uh, un- uh, you know, unapologetically romantic, which movies sometimes can get into trouble being, but I think it's a beauty. Chinatown, Cuckoo's Nest, About Schmidt, as good as it gets. Runners Up, by the way. Reds, which I've talked about previously, excellent supporting performance there with... Um, Warren Beatty. Hoffa, I'm one of the few people that love that movie. It got mixed reviews. It was a huge bomb at the box office. I love it. Most people don't. I think his performance is great. The Shining, again, you think of indelible Jack Nicholson archetypal performances. And Batman. Listen, it's not great acting, but he's having a blast, okay? And as far as the worst of, I've seen this on TV recently, Wolf. What a horrific idea. Mike Nichols, great director. Now let's have Jack Nicholson play a wolf. He's a guy who turns into a wolf at times. I mean, that is one of the worst ideas I've ever heard in my life. And as I mentioned, I've been missing Jack Nicholson. I've never actually seen The Bucket List, which is uh, you know the, one of the last movies he did. That was, came up back in 2007. He also had a small role in How Do You Know, which was 10 years ago. Guy's not even a movie in 10 years. Just loves the Lakers, sits at home, counts his money. Uh, but I've never seen The Bucket List. Maybe I should see it just because I'm missing Jack Nicholson. But I, I don't think it was anything to phone home about. I did not include The Departed. I know a lot of people hate it because they think his performance is over the top. I do think he's memorable, but I don't think it's one of his best. I'm sticking with those four, and I got four honorable mentions as well. Joe, what do you got? First, I will agree with you on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I feel like that is a must for him, one of his most iconic roles. I will also go with The Shining. And then I will go the Batman. I will say Batman nice. because even after Heath Ledger's performance in The Dark Knight, Jack Nicholson still to me is the Joker, you know? So I'll go the Batman. And then it's tough. Since you want Chinatown, I'll go his breakout role in Easy Rider. And, and, I'll, and I'll make that my fourth. And I feel like that's comfortable. But you're right. Departed, that, that's an honorable mention for me. I really liked him in that movie, uh, and that movie's great in general, but my four are One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Batman, The Shining, and Easy Rider. So many good movies. I mean, I'm a little surprised. Neither of us mentioned A Few Good Men. Again, you can't handle the truth. Who doesn't love that movie, or especially that scene and that performance? Uh, Five Easy Pieces is a great movie, playing Bobby Dupia, Concert Penis. I, I particularly love the ending of that movie. Had a few bombs along the way. You know, Mars Attacks didn't work out that well, The Evening Star. But there's some really good dramas he made. The Crossing Guard with Sean Penn, Blood and Wine, him and Michael Caine. Uh, the Pledge is pretty good. I mean, he's got it's a, it's a tremendous career. Uh, Terms of Endearment, he won an Academy Award for it. I'd never seen that until a couple years ago. Steve Parisman loves it, playing an astronaut. 
Again, surprisingly romantic. One that I've never seen, which I will get to at some point, Prissy's Honor, came out in 1985. Angelica Houston won an Oscar, of course, John Houston's daughter. Uh, I would like to see that at some point. That's our Mount Rushmore. Jack Nicholson, let us know. Cinephile Pod or Adnan Esperk, where you think we aired, where you think we were right. Now it's time for Total Recall. All right, Total Recall is the 2005 Oscars, the movies from 2004, really strong year. Million Dollar Baby, tremendous movie, won Best Picture. I think it was the right choice. Who else was nominated that year, Joe? The Aviator, Finding Neverland, Ray, and Sideways. You know how much I love Scorsese, but I'm telling you, I put Sideways number two. I, I think it's an incredible comedy. It's got real heart and emotion, incredibly drawn characters, strong ending. I mean, every single time you've got stuff here with, with Alexander Payne, you know it's going to be strong. The Aviator, listen, I just don't think it came from Scorsese's heart, uh, which is not to say that he's always going to have stories about you know dark and disturbed characters, because certainly Howard Hughes is battling OCD. And I think that the second half of the movie is stronger. But the first half is quite light for his films. I th- I like the flirtation scenes with Kate Blanchett, who is a dead-on Catherine Hepburn. Uh, the scene where his, his crash and burn is remarkably directed by Scorsese. I mean, you can feel the visceral power of it. And for a director who loves movies as much as he does, you'd think he'd have more movies about the making of movies, which he hasn't really done. But here you actually see Howard Hawks making Hell's Angels. Uh, I like The Aviator. It's not a movie that I love. I appreciate it, the production design, obviously the music and the, I mean, the editing, all that kind of stuff. But I don't love it. Million Dollar Baby, I love. Like to me, The Aviator moves your head. Million Dollar Baby moves your heart. Like you're watching that movie, you think this is a predictable movie about a female boxer overcoming the odds. And then all of a sudden, heartbreak. And I mean, literally, I feel like Clint Eastwood lifts your spirits. He lifts your heart and then he breaks it. There's nothing as satisfying as a great, sad movie. This is one of the all-time great, sad movies of all time. And Eastwood's performance, Hilary Swank won an Oscar, Morgan Freeman, I mean, all of them are perfection. And the script, tremendous, by Paul Haggis, uh, the Canadian. Obviously won an Oscar later on for Crash. And Eastwood's directing is so sparse and lean, and he doesn't overplay it. The music, phenomenal, which again, Eastwood did. Million Dollar Baby to me, I'm telling you. Like that, that's one of those movies, Joe, you could see in the 1940s, the 1950s. It is absolutely timeless. I was so happy it won. I 100% agree with you and the Academy. It's such a, such a great movie, and that's such a great point about you could make this movie in any decade and that it would still hold up. So I agree with you and the Academy. Billion Dollar Baby should have won Best Picture. And the Best Director, I agree that Clint Eastwood should have won because, again, I liked his... Look at the lighting in that movie. Like, go back and watch Million Dollar Baby and look at the lighting. He uses shadows so well in that movie. It, it is amazing how stark it is. And just the whole concept. Listen, you know how many boxing movies you've seen in your life? And yet he makes it feel fresh. You can literally smell the sweat in the gym. How about Jay Baruchel, fellow Canadian? Great small role playing Danger and his storyline. I mean, it, it's... The directing is really, really well done that movie. It does not overplay it. It's really kind of lets the story be the star. It's perfectly directed, especially when the moment has to swell, you know, when he tells her what Mokushla means. Amazing. Um, who else was nominated for Best Director? Martin Scorsese for The Aviator, Taylor Hackford for Ray, 
Alexander Payne for Sideways, and Mike Lee for Vera Drake. Well, if it wasn't Clint, I'd go with Alexander Payne because I love Sideways. Marty would be three for me. Hackford did a good job with Ray, and Mike Lee, Vera Drake, I've never seen in the Academy, does love Mike Lee, though. Certainly, he always makes memorable movies. Maybe I have seen Vera Drake, now that I think about it. I think it's a movie about abortion, okay? I think I have seen it. Uh, I don't think the directing was special. The screenplay was great. I know he got nominated for a script as well. All right, best actor is Jamie Foxx for Ray. Who else was nominated? Don Cheadle for Hotel Rwanda, Johnny Depp for Finding Neverland, Leonardo DiCaprio, The Aviator, and Clint Eastwood for Million Dollar Baby. Listen, Fox is awfully good, man. That guy's about as talented as it gets. He can sing, he can move. But my one quibble with Ray, and I do think he channels the spirit of Ray Charles and shows that even though you know he has this terrible disability being blind, he's in many ways a, I mean, a wretch of a character. I mean, he's a relentless womanizer. Like, he just doesn't care. Uh, but obviously so gifted musically. And his performance, I mean, he just grabs that performance by the tail. But honestly, I'd give it to Leo. I thought Leo nailed it as Howard Hughes, particularly, like I said, battling the OCD. The scene where Alan Alda puts his thumbprint on the glass and Leo has to fight the urge not to be disturbed by it. The fact he literally can't leave a bathroom at one point because of the germs and the way that his mind is he's just losing it. I know he won an Oscar for The Revenant, but I think you should have won an Oscar for the, the Aviator. That'll be my pick. Uh, Depp is good in Finding Neverland. Don Cheadle, definitely. I'm glad he finally got nominated. Guy's been a good actor for a long time. That's a touching performance in Hotel Rwanda. And Clint, again, I mean, listen, he won for Best Director. He could have won for Best Actor, too. It might be one of the best performances of his career. But I'd go with Leo myself. I like that pick. I would I would have been fine with Leo if he had won. I would have been fine with Clint Eastwood if he had won as well. But I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Jamie Foxx in the Academy just because you know I, I think Jeffrey Rush learned how to play the piano for Shine. Jamie Foxx learned how to play the piano blind for Ray. And I thought the movie was kind of an Oscar grab, but I don't think it was to Jamie Foxx's fault. So I'll pick him and agree with the Academy. Well, that's a really good point. But you're right about the fact that. You know, you could have play it blind. That's a good point. I mean, Jeffrey Rush, great, too, and Sean. I'm glad you mentioned that movie. And, and uh, certainly, like I said, super talented guy. Best actress, Hilary Swank for Million Dollar Baby. Absolutely deserved it. Knockout performance as Maggie. Who else was nominated? Annette Benning for Being Julia. Catalina Sandino Moreno for Maria, Full of Grace. Imelda Santon for Veer Drake, and Kate Winslet for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Swank's a knockout, but Joan, I love Eternal Sunshine, so Kate Winslet, I'm glad she got nominated. She would have been my second pick. Maria Full of Grace, a terrific movie. I mean, God, she, Catalina Sandina Moreno, if you haven't seen it, she plays a drug mule. I mean, it is heartbreaking. When you think of these people dealing in drugs, what they will do for their families, swallowing like hundreds of pills, getting across the border. I'd forgotten about that movie until Joe just mentioned the fact she was nominated. Great film if you haven't seen it, but obviously it's got to be Hillary Swank for me. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I, I, I would put Kate Winslet as my second as well. I'm kinda, I kind of wish Jim Carrey got nominated for Best Actor now that I think about it, but I agree with the Academy, Million Dollar Baby, Hillary Swank's best movie for sure. Yeah, absolutely right. Carrey should have been nominated. Well, let's omit Johnny Depp. If we could really rewrite it, forget about Finding Neverland. Should have been Jim Carrey for Eternal Sunshine. Best Supporting Actor is Morgan Freeman again. I think the Academy nailed it. They got it right playing Eddie Scrap Iron Dupree. Who else was nominated? Alan Alda for The Aviator. Thomas Hayden Church for Sideways. Jamie Foxx, Collateral, and Clive Owen, Closer. 
Clive Owen, <laughs> terrific at Curb Your Enthusiasm. If you watch this most recent season, the guy's kind of disappeared a little bit, made his name in the film Croupier. He's got one scene here. I mean, he's, he's, he's just wallowing in despair and distress, and he's just you know mesmerized by Natalie Portman's stripper. And he says to her, hey, what does your cunt taste like? <laughs> she says, like heaven. <laughs> Unbelievable, the fact he's just this disgusting, disturbed guy. He just keeps giving her money. He's just so, so filthy. Glad he got nine for Closer, which is not an easy movie to watch. I saw it once. That's enough for me. Marital people having a lot of screwed up issues. Forgot that Fox was a double nominee. Collateral. I only saw it once. I liked it. I'd like to see it again. Michael Mann and Tom Cruise playing a bad guy with a ton of gray hair. Alden the Aviator. I liked it because he was playing a bad guy. I mean, you always think of Alan Alda playing a nice guy and Mash and all the rest of it. But I thought he was very cunning as Owen Brewster. But it's got to be Morgan Freeman. My second pick would be Thomas Hayden Church. Absolute laugh riot. A guy who can't wait to cheat on his wife and goes out there with Paul Giamatti and endures holy hell with Sandra Oh swinging a motorcycle helmet at his face. Amazing. Because you think he's just a one-note cad. You think he's just some horny guy just screwing around being like a frat boy reliving his life. But the scene where he, like, he forgot his wedding ring and he starts crying. I mean, it shows you how a guy like this, I mean, he's pathetic at the same time. In addition to being a guy who's trying to, you know, sow his royal oats before he walks down the aisle. Thomas Hayden Church is great in sideways, but I'll go with Morgan Freeman. Yeah, I'll go with Morgan Freeman as well. Um, and I just love Alan Alda too. I might give it to him just because he exists as a person named Alden Al- Alan Alda. But I'm looking at this again, and do you think that Paul Giamatti should have been nominated for Best Actor this year? Yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. Now that I look at it, you're right. We should have had Carrie there. We should have had Giamatti. If we could redo this now, I think I'd go Jamie Foxx, DiCaprio, Clint Eastwood, and I'd take out Don Cheadle. I'd take out Johnny Depp, and I'd put in Giamatti and Jim Carrey. It's tough to take out Don Cheadle. Hotel Rwanda is a good movie, but you're right. Giamatti and Sideways, never better. Oh, yeah. He's so good. It, it, I, wonder what, I wonder what politics took place in Hollywood this year that kept him out, because um, <laughs> it, it seems like they should have been should have been on. Oh, I agree. And I think Johnny Depp in Finding Neverland does like a, a Scottish accent or something. I don't need that from him. You can just do an American one, you know? Yeah, you're right. Maybe that was the issue. The Scots had a heavy vote that year. Best Supporting Actress, Kate Blanchett, pitch perfect as Catherine Hepburn. Nailed that voice, which is often imitated, never duplicated. I'm agreeing a lot with the Academy here. Of the six categories, I think they got five of them right. Who else was nominated? And yes, our girl, Laura Linney for Kinsey. I love it. Laura Linney, yeah. Kinsey, Virginia Madsen for Sideways, Sophie Oconedo for Hotel Rwanda, and Natalie Portman for Closer. Sometimes the supporting actress category feels weaker. I think that's as strong as any category this year. I mean, all five of those performances. Lenny, fantastic, and Kinsey supporting her husband, who's a sex researcher, Liam Neeson. Madsen, amazing in Sideways, the scene where she's falling in love with Paul Giamatti, then gets repulsed when she finds out what his best friend is up to. Uh, Okanedo in Hotel Rwanda, seeing all the devastation there. And Portman, as I mentioned, playing this stripper who's just luring in Clive Owen. And she's, she's like a hornet luring him in. And then Blanche is perfect. That's, that's, that is one of the strongest years I've ever seen for supporting actors. Very, very well done by the Academy. I'm going with Kate Blanchett, Joe. Me too. I agree with the Academy. I think I've agreed with the Academy for every category so far. Uh, but you're right. Natalie Portman and Closers is also very, very good. So, But I'll go with Kate Blanchett for sure. Yeah. You know what? You're right about agreeing with the Academy because I'm going to agree with them on screenplays as well. Best original screenplay was, yes, our guy, Charlie Kaufman, along with Michelle Gondry and Pierre Bismuth for their eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Who else was nominated? The Aviator, John Logan, Hotel Rwanda, Terry George, and Keir Pearson, The Incredibles, Brad Bird, and Vera Drake, Mike Lee. 
with your love of animation, I know you're going to want to try to give it to Brad Bird, but come on, Charlie Kaufman. The guy should have won an Oscar for every movie he's written. I feel like he's so smart and so different. Eternal Sunshine, great script. 100% agree. That's one of my favorite movies. Michel Gondry and what he was able to do with that script, an incredible feat. I'll have to agree with the Academy. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. All right, how about best adapted screenplay? We have Sideways, who took home the trophy that year, Before Sunset, Finding Neverland, Million Dollar Baby, and The Motorcycle Diaries. I do like Before Sunset a lot, especially because Ethan Hawke got nominated for an Oscar, who I love. Him, Linklater, and Julie Delpy, and Kim Crisden. So four nominees there. And I like Before Sunset more than I like Before Sunrise. I'm telling you, it's tough to vote against Million Dollar Baby. I mean, just a knockout from Paul Haggis. Uh, The Motorcycle Diaries, I was not crazy about. I do remember seeing it. I thought it was a little aimless for my tastes. Sideways, about as funny as it gets. I mean, that, that is a funny movie, but it's also very precise and very perceptive. I know some people who didn't like it, who said that it was just every film critic loved it because basically Giamatti's playing a film critic. He's this bearded, depressed, bald man who's, you know, lost the love of his life now trying to write a book that nobody wants to publish. They go, of course critics loved it. That's what all these critics are like. But I think Sideways is amazing, particularly the ending. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't lose any steps. It doesn't get unnecessarily hokey or sentimental. It is very true to life. It's very authentic. And you see guys like this all the time. When Giamatti finds out that his ex is now not only married because he's at the wedding, but expecting a baby, the way he tries to conceal that emotion, I mean, God, you're right. It's a crime he wasn't nominated. I'm glad the script won because that scene is so well-written and so precisely handled by Alexander Payne. I don't disagree with you. I am going to go with Million Dollar Baby, but Sideways is such a such a great movie and script. Um, I will I will agree with you, too, on The Motorcycle Diaries. I loved the book, but I didn't think the movie did justice to, to Che Guevara's uh, memoir. So I will go with Million Dollar Baby, but Sideways is definitely deserving of the award. All right. Eight categories, and I agreed with seven of the categories. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Supporting Actress, Supporting Actress, and Screenplays. The only one I disagree with, the Best Actor, I go Leonardo DiCaprio. So Joe and I really agree with the Academy this year. All right, once again, next week here on Cinephile, HBO miniseries, I know this much is true, starring Mark Ruffalo, Body Double from Brian De Palma, and probably Rami as well, although we may hold that off until next time. Thank you so much for listening. We've also got a special guest next week, a Canadian director with a new movie coming out. So until Until then, I'll see you at the movies. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.